0: I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at New Balance.
1: I always took issue with the term athleisure. Sure, it covers the workout and the chill-out part, but doesn't account for all the running around the average woman does in between those two things, which feels far from leisurely. The people at New Balance get it, and have created the fresh foam crew sneakers to cover all those bases. The breathable knit body slips on and off easily, the sole cushioning is incredibly comfortable, and they look great whether I'm in sweats or jeans and a blazer. You can get your pair at NewBalance.com. Use code GOOP at checkout to receive free shipping through September 30th.
0: Hi guys. Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with provocative thinkers, industry disruptors, and culture changers. I'll take turns interviewing barrier-breaking guests as we talk about shifting old paradigms and starting new conversations. Today's guest is Dr. Will Cole. Dr. Cole graduated from Southern California University of Health Sciences as a doctor of chiropractic. He did his post-doctorate education and training in functional medicine and clinical nutrition. Today he partners with patients and their primary care physicians around the world, he focuses on optimizing the health of people with chronic conditions.
2: I think there's a lot of people that deserve an answer to why they feel the way they, they do, and more than an, uh, an answer as to why they feel the way they do, but actually have uh, an action step to then do something about it.
0: And he has a new book called Ketotarian, which combines the benefit of ketosis with a mostly plant-based diet. Our chief content officer, Elise Lunen, sat down with Dr. Cole to talk about his approach to lab work, nutrition, chronic conditions, and optimal well-being.
2: If I had to hang my hat on one set of eating, way of eating, that works a lot. Most of the time for chronic inflammatory problems, it's the ketogenic diet, or at least a low-carb approach.
0: After the conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you've got a burning or totally random question you want me to answer, hit us up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Now let's get to Elise and Dr. Will Cole.
1: Will, your approach is a little unorthodox. Can you explain how you practice and how you partner with people's primary care physicians?
2: Yeah, so I'm a functional medicine practitioner. So another word for functional medicine is integrative medicine. So our job is to really integrate all the part of someone's all the parts of someone's wellness journey. Um, so that may involve the PCP or endocrinologist, whatever specialist they may be seeing by the time they get to functional medicine. And our job is to put all those pieces together, see what's missing from that piece of the, from that puzzle and get them well. Mm
1: -hmm. What I think is so fascinating because I've worked with you as a patient is that you can do so much remotely and a lot of your work is based on labs and, Obviously that's that's a, a portion of what good healthcare looks like, but how much like how important do you think labs are gonna be in the future of medicine in terms of guiding how we treat ourselves?
2: Yeah, I think that's where functional medicine really thrives. It's this combination of the best of western medicine which is being evidence based and running labs and the best of alternative health which is actually getting somebody healthy so i think combining the best of both worlds and not uh, saying one's better than the other cuz i think they all have their place and i think my my priority is what works for the patient mm-hmm. what gets their labs looking great and those labs are a reflection of their health or lack thereof so that's my primary agenda And I think any good doctor, ultimately, that should be their agenda, is getting their labs looking great Mm -hmm. naturally, not just covering up um, symptoms or manipulating labs through different pharmaceutical drugs, even though those have their place as well. But my criteria is what is the most effective option for them that causes them the least amount of side effects? And for some people, medications fit that criteria. Some people are alive because of medications. But oftentimes, medications don't fit that criteria. They aren't very effective, and the patient will know it. They keep getting more and more and more of them and bigger dosages. But because what was once kept down with less medication now requires more and more medications to manage that disease. And these are disease-managing drugs and modifying drugs. So my job is to say, okay, what is their most effective option without all the side effects? Um, And oftentimes it is conservative lifestyle changes in their lives that can do dramatic things for their health, for their physiology, and for their labs.
1: One thing that I think is really interesting, too, is the functional range um, versus the lab range and the fact that most function, I guess all functional doctors really assess your micronutrients through a different lens. Can you like where do you think it's most pronounced or most important for people to focus when they're looking at their own lab
2: work? Yeah. And that's kind of a core facet of functional medicine is those labs that they get from their pcp or endocrinologist or rheumatologist those reference ranges they're comparing their number to these this range those ranges are for the most part based on a statistical bell curve average of people who go to labs and people that go to labs are predominantly people with health problems So there's a lot of people that are going to their doctor to say, hey, I don't feel well. Can you run these labs? And the labs come back entirely or almost entirely quote-unquote normal, even though the patient knows instinctively, heck, I don't feel normal. Mm -hmm. And they're told you're just depressed, here's an antidepressant, or you're just getting older. I mean, these are things that so many people over the years I've heard say. And what they're unintentionally being told is they're a lot like the other sick people make up the population of that lab. Mm -hmm. So if you take people with health problems out of that reference range, what's left is the functional range, where your body is thriving, functioning the best. And that's for most labs, a tighter range within that larger reference range. So there's so many examples that um, that just to make it real life, I guess the thyroid is a good example of that. It's a TSH. They'll run a thyroid-stimulating hormone uh, to diagnose someone with low thyroid function. And this is a problem for many, many women. Um, And if it's not above 45 they will say everything's fine. But if you take people with health problems out of that reference range, which is 0.45 to 4.5, the actual functional range, if you take people with health problems out, is about 0.45 to 2. Meaning you could have a TSH of 2.53, 3.54, all the way up to 4.5, and have symptoms. You don't feel well, uh, but you're told everything's fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And then beyond that, they're just running the basic labs. You cannot like everybody, we're all more complex than a TSH or whatever one lab you're talking about. So we have to run more comprehensive labs too. And that's just the thyroid. I mean, the list goes on and on. I'm just getting a more complex view of the gray areas of our physiology a nuanced perspective of why we feel the way that we do. Mm
1: -hmm. And it's interesting. So many people come to you in part because they cannot, their doctors won't, order labs, right? And I know you do that. You did that for me. I thought the other thing that was really fascinating is that you then took my 23 me, like the, my raw genetic code, and uploaded it to look at mutations in my liver. Am I even getting this right? Of where I'm where I don't absorb things well?
2: Yeah, it was methylation and detoxification. Okay. But but, yeah, you're right. It's impacting your immune system and your detoxification pathways. And we're all different Mm -hmm. from an epigenetic standpoint, all the lifestyle things like gut health or hormonal imbalances, but also the genetic component to us, which you can't change your genes, right? But you can... But you can mitigate uh, the risk factors associated with certain genetic predispositions by supporting genetic weaknesses. So the MTHFR mutation or all these other funny acronyms that we talk about in functional medicine, we can know how, your, how to best serve your body and get it to optimal health.
1: So is that, is that the future of medicine? Do you think people having like taking their genetic code, really understanding how they are and then applying it?
2: I think it's looking at genetics and epigenetics. I actually think epigenetics, environmental things are more important because our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years. But yet the explosion of health problems, autoimmune problems or whatever you're talking about, chronic health problems at large, those are growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, So genetics doesn't explain the totality of why you're seeing the explosion of health problems. So epigenetics is way more important than genetics as far as the power that we wield over our wellness. Mm -hmm. But genetics is a part of it. You can't ignore it. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at the one-third, which is genetics, and two-thirds, which is epigenetics. Look at all of that puzzle because that is where you'll find answers for action steps in real life to get well.
1: And epigenetics is essentially the the way that we influence how our genes express themselves, like our power to change the ending.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So it's the foods we eat or don't eat. It's our stress levels. It's the exposure to environmental toxins. It's our sleep. It's our physical activity. These are constantly and dynamically instructing our genes how to be expressed.
1: Which is fascinating when you can, when we think about in the future, having autonomy potentially over disease states like Alzheimer's or other terrible diseases to be able to early on understand that you might be able to to stop that gene from expressing itself. It's wild.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, um, you mentioned Alzheimer's, but the APOE4 gene, it that is a gene that you can look at. And it if you have that mutation, that does increase your risk factors for Alzheimer's. It doesn't mean you're going to get it. But we, by knowing genetic mutations and then looking at all the environmental factors, you can dramatically decrease risk factors. This mm-hmm. is huge. Because before it was, if my mom had it, if my dad had it, I was just waiting to see if it happened in my life. And now it's like, whoa, how can I take action on my health now before it gets that bad? Or even if things are already bad. Rarely have I seen it's too late to at least regain as much function as we can. Mm-hmm. You know?
1: Speaking of things being too late, and, and you brought up autoimmunity earlier, one of the things that you've spoken to us at length about at Goop is this idea of the autoimmune spectrum and that many women are on a spectrum. And just because you don't have the diagnosis or the disease code doesn't mean that you're not trending in that direction or that you are well so, can you expand on that a little bit, and sort of how you can turn people back from that the, that precipice?
2: So, autoimmunity—it's that general term for when the immune system's attacking part of our body. And there's an estimated 50 million Americans that have an autoimmune disease. And the criteria for diagnosis for most autoimmune disease are really like end-stage problems, meaning by the time they've di- been diagnosed. It's been going on for a while. On average, 10 years prior to the diagnosis. So for example, there has to be like 70% destruction of the myelin sheath before it's bad enough to show up in an imaging study and they'll call it MS. And similar numbers for Addison's disease, like autoimmune adrenal disease and celiac disease, a long time, these are chronic degenerative issues this is really just one end of a larger spectrum of autoimmune inflammation. Um, So there's three stages. There's silent autoimmunity, meaning if you ran labs, you'd have positive antibodies, but they're not having any symptoms. And then stage two is autoimmune reactivity, meaning they don't feel well. They feel really lousy, but they aren't bad enough to be fitting that criteria. So this stage two is, there's a lot of life and a lot of suffering that goes on there because those are the people that, Look, they may never even get to that place of diagnosis, and not that they even should or want to. I mean, that's to wait till your body's destroyed enough of itself. But it's the inexplicable symptoms. It's the going from doctor to doctor with a pile of labs and, like, nothing to show for it. It's being told things like, well, it looks like autoimmune. It looks like lupus. You have a positive ANA test, but, you know, come back basically when it gets worse for us to put you on a steroid or an immunosuppressant. This is the sort of reactionary approach to autoimmune care in the West. Um, The only options are steroids and immunosuppressants. Um, So having this conversation is a delicate one for me because I don't want to put fear into people and say, well, they're... being overly fearful about their symptoms or reading into it but at the same time I think there's a lot of people that deserve an answer for why they feel the way they they do and more than an uh, an answer as to why they feel the way they do but actually have uh, an action step to then do something about it but you have to know what you're up against to do something about it some common symptoms I guess to answer your question directly uh, it could be anything from like brain fog uh, like runaway anxiety, if they're, they're taking the medications that their doc, doctor prescribing, but they're not feeling much better. Maybe it takes the edge off, but they're really, they know instinctively something's not right here. But autoimmune conditions, that commonality is inflammation. Inflammation can manifest in really anywhere of the body. It can impact the brain, it can back, impact the joints, the digestion. I mean, again, there's over... 50 million Americans, there's over 100 different autoimmune diseases, and an additional 40. So we're talking about 140 problems that we know today. So yeah, that's far reaching. Um, And and that's not, I mean, those are pretty conservative numbers, really.
1: Mm -hmm. So how, just as as a general blanket assessment, how would you like people to both eat and supplement?
2: I think that And one of the things that really is the foundation of functional medicine as well is finding out what your body loves and what your body hates. So if I made a blanket statement about food, I'll be proven wrong like all day long with next patients with the same like diagnosis code. Right. So the commonality is real food. But I've seen the healthiest foods under the sun flare some people up. And then the next person, you don't notice it making good difference or a bad difference. So I rarely can hang my hat on one set of food, but I would say real foods. I would say avoiding the foods that are linked to triggering autoimmunity. And we're talking about people with a family history of autoimmunity. All right. So MS, Parkinson's, rheumatoid arthritis, there's 140 of them. So we're talking people with a family history of it, people with symptoms. Those people, I would say do best with avoiding gluten. Um, I know it's overplayed in the wellness world, but this grain protein has been linked to triggering autoimmunity, and a lot of dairy proteins, and that's basically, not to get super geeky here, but it's the beta A1 casein in the dairy. It's not A2, which is like the OG casein. It's like the ancient primordial one. Um, So a lot of these foods, dairy, gluten, and then for some people, eggs— and obviously sugar, I mean, the modern Western food, mm-hmm. that's a no-brainer. But within the real food world, whole grains, dairy, eggs, sometimes those foods can trigger or be, at least be a component to triggering autoimmunity.
1: So you have a book coming out, which is exciting. So Ketotarian and the, is the idea that, you know, obviously the ketogenic diet is really meat intensive, which turns off a lot of people, um, which it feels inherently kind of unbalanced and healthy. But so take us through your book. The idea, the overall thesis is you can do it in a plant, relatively plant-based way.
2: Yeah, you can do it completely plant-based. So seeing patients, and that's predominantly what I do for my whole week, as I just said, there's not a one-size-fits-all to getting well, well. And what I, if I had to hang my hat on one set of eating, way of eating that works a lot, most of the time for chronic inflammatory problems. It's the ketogenic diet, or at least a low carb approach. The problem that I'm finding in the mainstream keto world, keto for those people that don't know, it's high fat, low carb, moderate protein. Um, Their their, um, their diet is demanding them to basically eat a lot of dairy because that's ubiquitous and everyone loves it so they're getting a lot of these high fat cheeses and things like that which works great for some people but a lot of people with autoimmunity a lot of people with inflammatory problems don't do well on a lot of dairy and a lot of meat and what I find a lot of people in the keto world they'll eat basically anything as long as it fits the criterion of being high fat low carb just because something's high fat, low carb doesn't mean it's healthy. So I, what I wanted to do is sort of bring this amalgamation of the best of the plant-based world and the best, best of the keto world, best of the ketogenic world, which is what Ketotarian is. So it's, I put three different tracks in the book. There's vegan keto, there's vegetarian keto, meaning we bring eggs and uh, ghee, clarified butter, and uh, also I bring in uh, pescatarian options, what I call vegetarian, basically uh, wild caught fish and shellfish and things like that. And I have a lot of autoimmune friendly recipes in there, too. So I take the eggs out and the nightshades out and the nuts and seeds out for a lot of people with autoimmunity. They don't do well with those as well. So. I try to have something for everyone within that autoimmune inflammation spectrum because they're really the people I I hang out the most with from a patient standpoint, and I wanted something that they could use in their life.
1: And then the other part, so this gets people into a state of ketosis even though it's not, is it more because the ratio is right, or is is there an intermittent fasting component?
2: Intermittent fasting is an awesome tool to put yourself into ketosis. So- you can be in ketosis because of the macronutrient ratios. So we're still eating high-fat, low-carb, but we're doing it with real healthy plant-based foods. So our plant-based fats of olive oil, olives, coconut oil, coconut, all of that good stuff um, from from plants, as well as if you're having vegetarian options, you can have that. And obviously the wild-caught fish is for pescatarian options. Um, so yeah, it's completely... You're putting yourself in ketosis and becoming a fat burner uh, in a plant-based way. Um, And then the question rises, and I think this is kind of an argument against keto, is, well, should people be in ketosis long-term? Not necessarily. But I think some people do amazing long-term in ketosis. But what I say in Ketotarian is kind of put the work in to become a fat burner, kind of go from... Sugar burning to fat burning over two months. And this creates a sort of metabolic flexibility to ebb and flow from there. You can increase your carbs when you want to, but then go back to ketosis when you want a metabolic reset. And you can personalize it. You can find your carbohydrate sweet spot. You don't always have to be in ketosis, even though, again, people with insulin resistance, a lot of people with autoimmunity do well with longer bouts of ketosis or this anti-inflammatory state because the main ketone beta hydroxybutyrate that your body naturally produces is strongly anti-inflammatory it is a potent anti-inflammatory so anybody on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum there's a lot of cool research out there looking at the impact that healthy ketosis can have on inflammation
1: so take us through intermittent fasting because there's a lot of confusion about it. Is the idea that it's essentially you, you stop eating at night and then you don't eat. What, what is it? What do you prefer? 14 hours, 16, 12, Just coffee count? I have a lot of personal questions yeah. about this. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. So intermittent fasting, you can do it many different ways. And I talk about all in ketotarian, but basically the easiest way, like the beginner way, is eight to six Basically, only, eight, only eat between 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's super simple. Most people can do that. And then if you want to, like, lean into it a little bit more, I would say 12 to 6. Eat with between those windows. And then you can get more advanced. You can do, like, pick two non-consecutive days and fast those days, maybe drinking water. Um, and coffee is another good fasting tool as well. It increases lipo- lipolysis or fat burning. You know, there's some research to show at the beginning when someone's just beginning to drink coffee, it spikes cortisol, but then it tends to have a, it will uh, basically, your body will adapt to it.
1: So you can have coffee without breaking your fast.
2: Yeah. And
1: what about with almond milk or coconut milk?
2: (laughs) It's caloric restriction in general, you're still going to be in intermittent fasting. There's a number, it's a couple hundred calories you can get away with as long as it's, low-carb, meaning almond milk and coconut oil or MCT oil, those are all things you can bring into your coffee if you want to make your latte in the morning. You can still do that. That's still technically intermittent fasting. Oh, my
1: God. You just made my yes, whole I life. Just
2: changed your life and so many other people.
1: Oh, my God. My understanding was that it, it just allows your body to go and repair. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. It increases something called autophagy. So autophagy is this fancy word. Basically, it's broken down to self-eating. And it's your cells actually eating the dead cells, the dysfunctional cells, the diseased cells. It's this natural recycling repair system that our body has. And ketosis does it, and intermittent fasting does it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a great way to do sort of a cellular detox that your body does naturally on its own. Another cool way to do that with intermittent fasting, it's super simple too, is earl grey tea. So real earl grey tea with bergamot, uh, which is like a citrus fruit uh, from Calabria in Italy, in southern Italy. Uh, It's been shown to increase autophagy as well. So you could intermittent fast with earl grey tea, and that enhances autophagy. And you could probably add bergamot essential oil to coffee. I don't know if that would taste good or not, but... You could try that too if you wanted to stick with the coffee.
0: We'll have more of Elisa's conversation with Dr. Will Cole in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners.
1: Like so many women out there, I have a whole other job to get to that starts the second I clock out at the office. In my case, this typically means chasing after my two young boys while attempting dinner and clean up and bath time, and maybe a last minute trip down the hill to the grocery store because we're out of milk. Anything involving my kids requires a shoe that can keep up. The fresh foam cruise sneakers from New Balance do just that, thanks to the easiest slip-on-and-off design. To keep my sanity, I try to hit up a Tracy Anderson cardio class between my two jobs a few times a week, and that's where the sneakers' breathable knit body and super plush foam sole come in handy. The fact that New Balance shoes are aesthetically pleasing doesn't hurt either, especially when I put the sneakers on Saturday morning and don't take them off again until Sunday night. There are six great colors to pick from, like a pretty blush pink, dusty blue, and sleek black. You can get your pair at newbalance.com, use code goop at checkout to receive free shipping through September 30th. In my household, summer is over. Max just started kindergarten, and drop-off is at the inconceivable time of 7.35. My house is in disarray. My husband Rob and I both work, and we have two little boys, so we're both racing home at the end of the day to spend some time with them before putting them to bed. The grocery store isn't always an option, and cooking feels even more out of reach. We order way too much takeout, or what's worse, sometimes we just shovel various things in our mouths as we stand over the kitchen sink. That is just not my fantasy. I know we both need to sit down and have a nice and healthy dinner together. I recently heard about Gobble and was really excited to try it. For one, their meals are designed to cook in under 15 minutes and can all be made in one pan, which is great for those of us who don't find it relaxing to do a sinkload of dishes every night. But I was really into the meals in particular because the marinades were delicious and every dish was packed with spices, which made everything feel truly home cooked, despite the fact that it came together faster than it normally takes me to decide what to order. What I was most excited about, though, was that the salmon, served with delicious cauliflower rice and a red pepper vinaigrette, was sustainably sourced and rated as the best choice by the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Guide. It was delicious, and Max, my five-year-old, was so intrigued that he stayed up for a second dinner and loved it too. The best part? Gobble is offering Goop listeners a special deal. Get $50 off your first box from Gobble. Go to gobble.com goop and get $50 off. That's gobble.com slash goop.
0: Okay, let's get back to our chat with Dr. Will Cole.
1: So for intermittent fasting, it seems like something that, what would you recommend? That you do it sort of religiously for 30 days and then ideally maybe you do it during the week, but you have your wine at night on the weekends or... Every night, or is it something that just you you do your best sort of all the time? There's no problem with doing it in an ongoing
2: way. It depends on what we're talking about, the context of the person, right? If it's just about like lifestyle wellnessy stuff, yeah, I think, and this is something I really wanted to convey in Ketotarian is have a grace and lightness to wellness. I don't think that we should be having all these dogmatic rules and saying, well, you have to do intermittent fasting this much um, or else you're not going to get the benefits. I think the more you lean into these things, the more you're going to get benefits from. But you have to find your sweet spot. Because I find two people get overly ambitious and they fast too much too soon. And then they're kind of being too aggressive for their body. And then they end up like binging on junk food and stuff, that's not serving them well. Mm-hmm. They're coming in with good intentions, but they need to do what's right for them. And sometimes it's just being more balanced and just being lighter with it then. if And then they may can lean into more advanced intermittent fasting protocols later on.
1: Mm-hmm. Seems like, and this is sort of something that we do at goop is, you know, we do our annual detox, which is really just like a diet cleanup every January. And it's a week long. And I like I personally find that if I sort of do something like that twice a year, that it gets me back into a good place. And then I sort of slowly slide and then I return. I mean, do you think for people who are for the most part healthy, like that's just sort of a return to good habits quarterly, twice a year, like that can be enough?
2: Yeah. I, I, and there's something I, I like about seasonal as well, Almost like the spring cleaning, the summer refresh, getting ready for fall, the sort of incubating time period and through winter as well. So yeah, two times a year is fine. four times a year is even better, kind of finding your center. Mm-hmm. And some people are going to have to find their center more frequently, and some people are going to always have to be at their center mm-hmm. because they know if they deviate from that center, they'll pay for it. So it's varying degrees of that.: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, quarterly seem maybe that's, maybe that's where I'm trending. What, what's new? Like, when you're looking at your patient base and, and people are presenting, are there, are there extreme cases that are actually opening you up to new ways of thinking? Like, are you encountering a lot of parasites or a lot of dormant viruses? Or, what? like, what's exciting?
2: What's exciting for me? What's exciting for me is I think that people are becoming aware of the impact that of macros, and this is like super geeky, but I think the world of ketogenic and the world of low carb, it's all that real food. You can make keto and low carb basically any diet. You could do Mediterranean, vegan, vegetarian, all that cool stuff. And I think real food is the baseline and it's way better than the standard American diet. But then from there, it's like, how can we optimize our macros to feel great? And again, this is not about becoming obsessive about food or becoming orthorexic. This is about feeling freaking fantastic and knowing how foods make you feel fantastic or make you feel lousy Mm -hmm. Uh, and finding that personal code in that way. That's not new, but I see it raising, the consciousness is being raised within the wellness world and that's permeating into mainstream, which I like because they're actually finding how to basically biohack using foods and feeling great. But without, like, if food's removed, something that I have been doing research on is helminth therapy. Uh, It's basically um, parasites, for lack of a better word, roundworms, um, that researchers and some clinical settings are um, giving people intentionally on the autoimmune inflammation spectrum to attenuate inflammation. So basically the theory is this helminthic theory is we have evolved with these parasites, these like good bugs for a long time. And this over-sanitation of modern society comes with a lot of benefits, but uh, we've kind of over-sanitized now and this um, missing microbes and these missing uh, good parasites are gone from the microbiome because of our sanitation. And this is a one facet to maybe why uh, autoimmune diseases are rising and why we don't see autoimmune diseases as high in developing countries. Mm-hmm. So what researchers are trying to do is trying to get the microbiome to look like our ancestors would look like to help with um, this autoimmune imbalance that's going on so the basically the parasites want to survive and they know how to survive so they balance out the immune system look this is like super new wave stuff i'm not saying anybody to go swallow parasites but this is something to at least maybe learn about and um, educate yourself on
1: and is this the same as like a fecal transplant or is this slightly different
2: it is different than a fecal transplant because these, there are doctors that are doing this in the autism setting, they're doing it in the MS setting, some amazing stuff where basically you just take the solution, the, they're microscopic, you're not even seeing these little buggers, and you are swallowing them, and then they're non human, so they don't even last in you for more than a couple weeks. But I have heard cases of dramatic improvement. And again, this is not like first step, like don't eat McDonald's, swallow parasites. <laughs> this is like, this is like some, someone Go that's- Don't
1: get a fecal transplant. You <laughs> yeah. heard it here
2: first. <laughs> this is years down the line of them doing everything and like their light years better, but they're not 100% better. And that's like the extra 10% or 20%. Fecal transplant is different. Uh, that's actually taking actual fecal- matter into from a healthy person to an unhealthy person.
1: And the application for that is primarily um, like a decimated microbiome, right? From maybe taking too many antibiotics, or I guess maybe over sanitization as well.
2: Yeah, or birth. I mean, the first round of the microbiome we get from our mom, we inherit our microbiome from generation to generation. Uh, So yeah, it's, if the baby's born C-section versus vaginally, then it's like, okay, are they on antibiotics as a kid? There's a lot that happens in the first, like, three years of life before we even make a decision determining our microbiome. But, yeah, then after that, it's a lot of other cultural things and alcohol and food and all of that other stuff. It's it's, it's growing or decimating our gut garden, our microbiome.
1: Got it. So I know... You've made it clear you're not into sweeping statements, but considering how many labs you've looked at, what, what do you see as sort of baseline? Like, does everyone need to be taking vitamin D? Does ever like where, where, what are the general buckets?
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's absolutely general buckets and there's absolutely low hanging, like obvious things. That I think most people just seeing the, the labs, there's a lot of commonalities, Vitamin D deficiency, you bring that up. I mean, that is one deficiency that I see because most of my patients are via webcam. I see patients like near the equator and then like way out in the middle of nowhere in the cold. And they're all vitamin D deficient. And even if they're working outside in Southern California, I see them vitamin D deficient. So I think that we're not it, we're not spending enough time outside, and we're mostly clothed outside too. Um, so the function
1: nude bathing, you are sunbathing. Yeah,
2: that's the solution for vitamin D deficiency. <laughs> Basically, the optimal range for vitamin D is sixty to eighty. Most people are not there. So supplementation with vitamin D. I think that. In general, most people are on this inflammation spectrum, not autoimmune inflammation spectrum, just higher inflammation levels. Um, so measuring CRP, which is a C-reactive protein, it's a pro-inflammatory protein, we want it under one. A lot of people aren't, and they're not even noticing it until you run a lab, you see it's high. But this has increased problems. It's not good. Um, so things like turmeric, uh, something called terostilbene, it's like a like the strong cousin to resveratrol. It's like a super potent resveratrol. Uh, it's good at, at attenuating inflammation levels. Uh, so inflammation, vitamin D, and then I think B vitamins supporting methylation is important because you have these methylation gene impairments. And again, our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years, but the amount of stressors that we're putting our genes under, that's the variable. So our methylation pathways are like stressed out because of the amount of environmental stressors and life stressors we have today. So we can support our methylation, which is detoxification, healthy hormones, brain health, gut health, immune health, by activated methylated B vitamins, like folate and methyl B12. These are simple things Mm -hmm. that you could do. Just those three simple things, you would make a positive impact in your health.
1: You heard it here first. Yeah. Thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much for joining our conversation with Dr. Cole today. You can learn more about Dr. Cole's work at drwillcole.com and at goop.com slash the podcast. Now it's Ask Me Anything time. Alina asks, what are your best tips for starting your own business? Oh my God, I would say don't do it. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) My best tips for starting your own business, it has to not be a choice. You have to have so much passion and drive to do it that it can't even be a question. If the question is should I or should I not, the answer is probably no. But if you have a burning desire and you absolutely have to do it, then I would say think it through really well. Write a really cohesive business plan for it. Get help. You can also get a lot of it's a lot of information on the internet about how to do it. Find mentors. Call somebody who's done it before. Email them. Reach out to people who have done something similar that you admire and try to understand how they did it. Read a lot about how they did it. Harvard Business School has a lot of published case studies about how people have made big decisions in in business and where. And I think it's important to think big. I think it's important to think where you're ultimately going with it. And uh, you can really be surprised by what manifests. Have a question? Drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this week's episode of the Goop Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share with your friends. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And for more info, head over to goop.com slash the podcast. See you next week.